we're in a series on being in Christ, because that's the most important of all things. Al spoke last week, kicked us off, and uh, reminded us that the word in can mean many different things. And the phrase in Christ might not mean clearly anything to us straight away. So let me take a moment to go over it. Uh, What it means to be in Christ, in the New Testament, it means that we are in an intimate relationship with Christ. But actually, it means even more than that. We read in the New Testament that those of us who have repented and believe in Christ are baptized into Christ. That is to say, we are, we are plunged into him. We are placed in him. But the New Testament, we're plunged into Christ. And it's, it's like sticking a, a bucket in the ocean in that we're, we're put into him And he's so much more than us. But even as we're plunged into him, he gets inside us at the same time. And so the New Testament says not only that we are put into Christ, but Galatians 2.20 says, Christ lives in me. Comes both ways around. 1 John 3 verse 24 says, The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, that is, we live in God, and he in them, that is, God lives in us. This phrase, in Christ, is a headline little snapshot of a phrase that reminds us of this intimacy of relationship, that that we're in him and he's in us, and it goes even further. You see, we are so plunged into Christ that the nature of Christ gets into us. And so we share in the nature of Christ. Now, that's a big thing to say. That is a really (laughs) big thing to say. Maybe it seems too far-fetched. Maybe it seems I've read too many theological books and got high on them. I don't know. Highfalutin. Far-fetched. That we, is it true? (laughs) That we share the nature of Christ. Another apostle writing, uh, Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4, God has given us his very great precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature. Says it plainly. Sometimes it says, uh, another translation is, you may partake in the divine nature. That is, you can join in and be a part of of, of who God is and what he's done. It's not that we become God, but his qualities are, are there for us to not only learn about outside of ourselves, but they get into us. So let me put it this way. It is not simply that God 
gives us wisdom, but that God is wisdom and plunged into him, we become wise. It is not simply the case that God gives us peace, but that he is the prince of peace. And plunged into him, we become peaceful. It is not simply the case that God gives us joy, but that he is unalterably, eternally joyful. Happy, happy, God. Plunged into him, we become joyful. Is this making sense? Oh, good, because it's pretty deep stuff. We're going to look at the letter to the Hebrews and start in chapter 3. Because here are a couple of illustrations that will help these deep truths, I trust, land with us a little bit more. Our main passage for this morning is Hebrews chapter 3 from verse 7 and then on into, into chapter 4. Now, there's a clue in the name of the letter. It's written to the, there we go, someone's awake, to the Hebrews. Uh, and uh, the letter therefore assumes that it's being read by Hebrews, or at least by people who have a knowledge of some of the famous stories of Hebrew history. So I just want to run through the most famous of all of those Hebrew stories, the story of the Exodus and what followed. Let's just run through it quickly. It begins with a proclamation of good news. God meets with Moses, and the Lord says to him, because uh, I should, in case it's not clear, at this point, the Hebrew people, they're in Egypt, and they are oppressed as slaves. Then the story of the Exodus begins with God speaking and saying, I have seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's this proclamation of good news that slavery will not endure for these people, but they're going to go, going to come out and go into a land that is good and spacious. Ha, it's a joyful place. It's a happy place. It's good. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey that is plentiful. There is abundance. There's enough to have a good meal every day. It's a place of, of feasting. And so then God worked in power and caused the Egyptians to let the people go. And then they came out into the desert and they're camped by the Red Sea. That's this picture, the Red Sea. They're camped there. And then the Egyptian, Egyptians have changed their mind and the army comes out to, towards the Hebrew camp. And the people are terrified. See this military force coming towards them. And then 
to them, more good news is proclaimed. It comes through Moses. Moses says to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm. You will see the deliverance of the Lord today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. And as they stood and sat still, the sea parted. It's a picture. They walked through on safety, uh, to, uh, to safety on dry land. And again, there came good news. This is recorded in Deuteronomy 12 and verse 10, where the word comes to them saying, whilst they're in this desert, you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And here's a further promise. He will give you rest from all your enemies so that you will live in safety. So this promised land, there, it's, a place, it's a happy place, it's a place of joy and of feasting and of triumph. There are battles to fight with enemies in the land, but the promise is of eventual victory, battles that will lead to triumph. And again, then, in this story, the people come up against another body of water, this time the River Jordan. And at the River Jordan, on the edge of this promised land, they send in 12 spies to look at it. And all of these 12 spies come back saying that the land is indeed brilliant. It is a happy place. It is a place of feasting and of joy, of plenty. And two of them say, right, let's get on with it. Let's go in. But 10 of them, the great majority of them, say this. I can imagine them sucking through their teeth. The people who live there, they say, they're very powerful. And so um, we can't attack them. They're stronger than we are. And on their advice, the people who've been approached by an army by a sea and been told to stand still and seen the sea part and walk through those people stood, sat next to another body of water being told about some tribes, not an imperial army like Egypt, just some tribes. They say, oh no, can't be doing that. And so God responds to them. And this is in Numbers 13 and 14. And in Numbers 14 and verse 30, God says in response, so not one of you will enter the land I swore to make your home. And he promises that the whole generation will die in the desert. They'll not make it in. Their children will get in because God's promises will be fulfilled. But this generation, he says of them, you will perish in, in the desert. So that's the story. After hearing good news again and again, as God spoke promises over them, the people started out well, but they didn't continue to trust God 
And so they failed to enter in, and they perished. That's the story, the most famous of all stories of the Hebrew people. And here we are in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 7. As the Holy Spirit says, and then there's a quote from the Hebrew Scriptures, today, from Psalm 95 in particular, today, if you hear his voice, that is God's voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert when your fathers tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. And I said, their hearts are always going astray. They haven't known my ways. And so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a, a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Now, we have come to share in Christ, and it's one of these places where you could translate it several ways. And the King James says, we are made partakers in Christ. It's this, this being in Christ thing. We get to be plunged into him and have his nature seep into us. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Weren't they all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the desert? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the, the promise of entering his rest still stands, and it's not now a promise that we will all go and get to live in Israel, but th things have moved on from there. And we could talk about all of that some other time, but we'll stick with the story, with the, with the text here. Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we, for we also have had good news preached to us, just as they did. But the message that they heard was of no value to them, because those who heard it, they didn't combine it with faith. Now, we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So if you are a Christian, which I know the great majority of people here are, if you are a Christian, 
you have been saved from slavery. Their story is, is your story. The story of the Hebrews, it's a, it's a, it's a theologians use the word type, which means it's, a, it's an instance of a way in which God works with people. Their story is the same shape as our story. We have been slaves, saved from slavery. Our slavery wasn't to Egypt, it was to sin. We have been saved from slavery to sin by believing in good news. Our good news is about Jesus Christ. And now we continue to share in Christ, partaking of him and his divine nature by continuing to believe the simple gospel message by being willing to keep still when he says so, because he's going to fight for us. By trusting that he will give us all that we need. And so this letter to the Hebrews, it uses the imagery of the promised land to show what it's like to be in Christ. So it's by faith that you get in, and what it's like being in, it's like the promised land. It's a happy place. It's a place of joy. And it's a place of, of triumph. There are battles in the Christian life. But they're battles that will be resolved. The end of the story is that Jesus wins. And if we're in a chapter of the story where it, we're still in a battle and it feels like we're losing, well, the story's not over. Because the story's not over until we have rest from all our enemies until there is a complete conquest. I've lost this PowerPoint a long time ago. There's a promised land of joy and of triumph and of feasting. There, is, there, are, there are rich blessings in the Christian life. There is, a, there is a, like a mountain, an abundance of blessing in the Christian life. It feels like feasting. We don't kind of scrape by with a little bit of the word of God to keep us through the day. We're not just surviving. We're able to thrive. Yeah, that's right, because there is this provision in God. So the passage goes on from verse 4. Somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. That's a quote from the first of the two creation accounts in the scriptures. God Work for six days to create everything. And then on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. It still remains that some will enter that rest. And those who formerly had the gospel preached to them didn't go in because of their disobedience. Therefore, God again set a certain day calling it today, when a long time later he spoke through David, who wrote the psalm that we've been quoting again and again in this text. A long time later, God spoke through David, as it was said before, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. See, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. The point is a little bit, if you feel this is a little bit convoluted, it's because the writer of this letter is trying to say to the Hebrews, look, 
these things were said in the past, and you might feel like they're just a historic thing that you can know about having happened. But you see, David spoke about entering rest, and David comes centuries after this Exodus story. So if David is saying there is a day called today when you can enter my rest, it's not just some historical exercise of looking backwards. Because it's David that says this centuries after the Exodus, this is a word from God that says today is continuing. There is still a, there's still rest to it. It's not just looking back, oh, it's a lovely story. Something exists for us. Rest that we can enter into. So, verse 9, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. That um, is a couple of Hebrew words which says Shabbat Shalom. It's the greeting that's spoken today in the nation of Israel as people again speaking Hebrew to one another. And they see each other on Saturday, which is their Sabbath day, and say, Shabbat Shalom, blessing to you on this Sabbath day. So the entry into the promised land is one illustration of what it's like to enter into Christ. The promised land, a place of joy and of triumph and of feasting. That's what it's like in Christ. And here's a second illustration that, again, Hebrews specifically would have understood. They knew the story of the Exodus, and they knew what Sabbath was. Now, remember, uh, this thing about being in Christ, it's not just blessings that are given to us. It's that we get to be plunged into this relationship with God where what he's like comes into us. And it's like that with rest. Because listen to what it says again in verse 4. It, it says what God did. It said, on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And the Old Testament, in the fourth of the Ten Commandments, explains Sabbath with reference to God's rest. It says this in Exodus 20. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a day of Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shan't do any work. But in, and why? Why? Why have a Sabbath? What, is it, well, because you get a bit knackered otherwise? It's not what it says. It says, but in six days the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. So, so this is how it goes. It's not simply that God gives us rest, but that he himself has rested and being plunged into him, we too enter his rest. His, the, the peaceful stillness, the, the tranquility that is at the heart of the living God who created all things. That's what we enter into. The heart, the nature of the Prince of Peace, we get to, we get to enter in. And 
in his divine nature. What a great and precious promise. Activists like me need to hear this. That leaving our nets and following Christ is not only defined by imitating his works. It is also defined by imitating his rest. Listen to these words from the prophet Isaiah. This is in Isaiah 58, and it's a statement of what happens for those people who keep the Sabbath. Isaiah 58 and verse 14 says, Then, on keeping the Sabbath, you will find joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. There it is again, same stuff. Joy and triumph and feasting, abundance and plenty and victory and happiness to be discovered where? In Christ. Because we're entering into him. And it's not just the promised land that has these qualities. And it's not just the Sabbath day that has these qualities. But God himself is joyful. And God himself is victorious. Being the Lord Almighty, creator of all things. God himself is Abundant. He announces himself to Moses. Moses says, who are you? God says, I'm the Lord. Abounding. Got loads. Got loads of stuff that you need. No lack. Infinite God never comes to an end. So, if there was joy and triumph and feasting in the promised land, and if there was joy and triumph and feasting on a Sabbath day, how much more joy and triumph and feasting is there for us when we enter Christ? This is a description of the Christian life. This is what it means to be in Christ. No wonder that the next verse in Hebrews 4 says this, therefore, uh, let us make every effort to enter that rest. Well, you would, wouldn't you? What do you want to miss out on that for? Let's make every effort to enter into Christ. Let us trust him, because that's how we get in. It's a matter of faith. And then a, a sober warning. Having said, let us make every effort to enter that rest, it says, so that no one will fall by following the Hebrew example of disobedience. It's there. There's a whole generation that perished. And so it's not, the, the choice that's being offered us here is not have a great life in Christ or kind of tootle along. The choice that's being offered us is life in Christ, abundant life, wonderful eternal life in Christ, or perishing. Now, we don't talk too often about God's intentions for eternity, but this is a description of eternal consequences. G. 
Jesus is very clear in saying that those who are not in him, those whom he does not know personally, who have not been saved by, who've not received, who've not entered in, are subject to God's wrath, much as the Hebrew people back in the Exodus story were subject to God's anger. Because it was so straightforward to trust God. They'd seen it happen before. God says, that is just wrong. And you will perish. So what what might those efforts be? Where it says, make every effort to enter that rest. What might those, what efforts might we make? I want to just name one this morning. And it's the obvious one from this passage. And the question I want to ask is, what would it look like to actually keep a Sabbath? Uh, Some of you um, married couples have date nights. I say some of you, Bev and I don't do that. It's not that we don't love each other, it's just the whole date night thing seems so confected to us, we couldn't take it seriously. But I know it's a blessing for many of you. (laughs) um, I just need to say, there's like an integrity issue there. I couldn't say date nights are great and never take my wife on one, could I? Oh, no, I'm digging a hole at the... Oh, just at the point I'm trying to land it, I'm digging myself a hole. Oh, man. You know, I was leading, I was leading a retreat um, yesterday for a bunch of 50 leaders of churches in the Midlands. And just as I was trying to wrap it up then, I said something, and I felt this conviction from the Holy Spirit come on me for having said what I just said. Like a weekend of that. Oh, well. Um, the point of a date night I understand from people who do it is is that you set aside a regular time to make sure that you're romantic (laughs) so what, the, what I want to su- suggest <laughs> is what would it be like to see Sabbath day as like a whole date day? Not a date morning. Because the scripture doesn't say God worked for six days, had the morning off, cracked on. (laughs) It says God worked for six days and then he rested. So what would it be like for us in every week to take a day and make it God's in some special way? What would that be like? We could call it Sunday. Well, some people have work that takes up Sundays, and I'm not wanting to push us towards any kind of legalism about what is and isn't allowed on Sundays. Uh, But there is a problem 
if no single day of the week somehow, if, if none of the days of the week feel in any way especially devoted to God. And, um, you know, when I was a teenager, my pattern of Sunday life, when I had very few responsibilities, other than to make sure I brushed my teeth and made some packed lunch each day, I didn't do that properly either. My Sundays then consisted of going to a Sunday morning worship service, coming home, lunch was cooked for me, I was a teenager. And then I'd spend the afternoon typically reading reading the scriptures or some kind of Christian writing, and then return for an evening service. And as I was preparing for this morning, I found myself looking back, I don't think nostalgically, but rather um, like a yearning being, what was that, reawakened. Because started about 40 minutes ago with a sense of awakening, God wanting to awaken desire. We're not going to spend that length of time with God if we don't want to be with him. Got a special form of petrol again. <laughs> um, you know, I do believe that God wants to lead us deeper with him. That there's, there's more that he has for us. Um, that, that those of us who, who we've said yes and been baptized into Christ but somehow his nature is still got some way to go in seeping into us. But he's determined to get it in. And this is not about trying harder. The Hebrews didn't escape Egypt or enter the promised land by military training. But they trusted God. So I'm going to finish by praying. Lord God... I pray that you would help us to enter in to all the richness of your life. Lord, you know that we desire joy in our lives, and you know that we desire victory, and you know we desire abundance. Lord, thank you that in your wisdom, you have made it such that those things don't just come to us as gifts, but we find them in you. We don't find them outside of relationship with you like presents from an absent father. But we get to dwell with you and in you and you in us. I pray, God, that you would awaken that desire. And I pray that it would not seem to us like a complicated or far off thing to devote a whole day somehow or other to you and even to do that every week. 